Lord, this morning as we look in your word, uh, uh, give me clarity in my thoughts, and I pray that this look in your word would be a helpful, uh, encouraging, beneficial. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if it's the weather or what. Uh, our house, we've been, well, I feel like I could sleep every day. I, and I don't know why that is. Summers normally think of as a busy time. Uh, most of my 20 years or so, of uh, the last 20 years or so, I've worn at least two or three hats at the same time, which means I've either been serving church leadership and I've been doing at least one other full-time job and sometimes one and a half or two other jobs as well. Uh, I've been in church leadership for about 20 years and I was a firefighter for 16 of those and did a home inspection business, you know, for the last 10. So uh, it's, a, it's a demanding thing to wear multiple hats. And the book that we're looking at in this morning, this was what we would call today a bivocational kind of guy or trivocational, depending on how we count it. We're looking at Amos this morning. We're in the minor prophets and we're in our series majoring in the minors. Not minor teachings, but smaller books, prophetic books in the back of your Old Testament. Amos, uh, listen to what Amos said about himself in Amos 7.14. He says, I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. Amos was a shepherd. He, he says before this, actually, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't a prophet's son. He wasn't trained or raised up to be a prophet. He's this guy tending sheep, raising the flocks. And probably when he says sycamore trees, sycamore fig trees, these were less productive, less desirable trees. And in the development of the fruit, they had to be pricked. The end of the, each, each little fig had to be pricked. And so the thought is, Amos was probably not only a blue-collar shepherd, but this probably means he traded his labor to folks who owned these sycamore figs for the, right, for the grazing rights for a sheep. This was a hard-working, blue-collar kind of a guy. So he's raising, tending his sheep, and while he's doing that, he's probably tending these trees as well just for additional grazing area. And then on top of that, the Lord says, and by the way, I've got one more thing for you to do. I want you to go prophesy to Israel in the north. Let me give you some background before we jump in. Amos means burden bearer. I find this interesting. Uh, you know, oftentimes if you read, depending on the version of your translation, if you read a prophet, it might say the burden of the Lord concerning. That is, oftentimes when God gave a prophet a message, the message was what was called a burden. And Amos, the shepherd, becomes a burden bearer. In this case, the word of God, his prophetic utterances were the burdens he was bearing. So he was a burden bearer. He lived in the 700s B.C. So if you read Amos, and we, again, we're only touching on some highlights here. There's so much that we won't mention. But if you read Amos, you'll see some common elements with uh, Hosea that we looked at already or with Isaiah or some of the other prophets. And Isaiah and Hosea would have followed shortly after Amos gave his prophecies. So Amos is around 760, 750 B.C., Isaiah, and Hosea would have followed shortly after. King Uzziah, probably best known for Isaiah 6 in the year of King Uzziah's death. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's, he is prophesying while Uzziah is still living in Judah as king in the south. And then King Jeroboam II, not the first king of Israel, but Jeroboam II is king of Israel in the north. And 
like some of the other prophets, Amos actually, he's a southerner. He lives down in Judah, south of Jerusalem, about 10 miles in Tekoa. But God says, I want you to go north of the border into the nation of Israel. Remember, the nation's cut in half, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. I want you to go up and talk to Israel in the north for me. If you've seen the movie, probably most in here have, last year it was the Christmas, one of the Christmas big releases, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think it was Christmas. Is that right? Okay. If you remember towards the end of the movie, the white witch and her army are attacking the Narnians and the Pavensi kids who are kind of marshalling the troops there, and, and it looks like all is going to be lost, and and Aslan, the Lion King of Narnia, comes back and in the movie stands on this kind of protruding rock. And do you remember what he does when he gets on it? He roars. And everybody knows that he's there. It kind of stops everybody in their tracks because Aslan had been dead. But he's come back to life. And now his presence is made known because he stands on this rock and he roars. And his roar cannot be ignored. It stops everybody in their tracks. Aslan the lion roars. Well, when Amos takes up his prophecy, he says, God is roaring, and you better listen. In Amos 1 verse 2, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. That is, pastures from where he lives in the south up to Carmel, a mount up near the Mediterranean coast. It's withering under the roaring judgments of God. And God's roaring is Amos's prophecy. So God's roaring through the words of Amos. And turn to chapter 3 if you want. By the way, Amos is full of literary devices. Uh, I love it because of that. You can uh, get out your calculator and do all kinds of little countings as you read through the book of Amos. He uses these as literary devices. Uh, Amos 3 uses some of these repetition uh, using these graphic images to make a point, which the payoff is at verses 7 and 8. But starting at verse 3, Amos says, Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when no snare has been set? Or does a trap spring up from the earth when there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, don't the people tremble? When a disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Amos takes us through the series of things which we say, well, of course, if two people have, are walking together on the trail, I say, gosh, they called each other they, to set it up or they wouldn't be able to be together. In each one of these things, Amos says, we see one thing, we know another. One is tied to the other. We see one thing, we know another thing is true. He gets down to verse 7 to say, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos says, I'm prophesying because God the lion has roared. I'm coming north to Israel to prophesy, and that tells you that God has spoken. This is a great verse, verse 7, that says God tells his people ahead of time what he's going to do. And the fact that I, this guy from the south, the shepherd who's south of Jerusalem, I'm up here telling you guys this, it tells you that God the lion has roared. God has spoken and I must prophesy. So Amos lets these guys know right from the start that they need to take his words as seriously as if the lion is roaring outside your window. You better listen up. You better take heed. You guys know uh, 
if this is true of Amos' words, one minor prophet in the Old Testament, this is true of all of God's word. That is, uh, this maybe think of this as an exciting way to think about your Bible, that, that between the covers of your Bible, the lion is roaring, so to speak. When we lived in a house uh, closer to Gage Park than we do right now, several years ago, Becky, on Jewel Street, uh, on quiet Saturday mornings, if, when the weather was nice and our window was open, I could hear the old male lion in Gage Park Zoo roaring on Saturday morning. It's probably two miles away. So I would wake up to the roar of the lion, and I loved it. You know, it's like in Colorado, if you wake up and you hear the, the elk bugling, you know, in the fall, it's like, oh, boy, this is good. Well, I'd wake up and, the li- and literally to hear the lion roaring. And, you know, when you and I, when we're picking up our Bible, we've got, in that same sense, we've got not only the roar of God in the book of Amos, but we've got all of God's written revelation. And so when you wake up, think about waking up to the roar of the lion, Zach. That would make it more exciting, right? I'm going to open my book and I'm going to hear the roar of the lion. What has God said? God spoke, so Amos prophesied. And you and I have the same thing today. We've got the roar of God through Amos and we've got the rest of the roar. And remember, the Bible ends with the lion from the tribe of Judah who's overcome and who presents himself as the conquering king. We've got the lion still roars today in the covers of your Bible. By the way, here's another thing. You and I may feel meek as lambs. That is, we may feel tentative and insecure in a number of ways. Sometimes, though, God will give you something to say that you consider difficult. And you need to be like Amos. You need to say, I feel like a lamb and I'm called to roar. And it may not be much of a roar. It may sound like a meow instead. But if God's given you something to say, uh, say it. Say it, whatever it is, to, to whoever. This, this is difficult, but you know part of being a Christian is not only taking in God's truth, but then it's speaking God's truth. And God will almost certainly put all of us in situations in which we're called to speak God's truth because we know it to someone else. Could be to a Christian, could be a family member, it could be to someone who doesn't know Christ at all. And you may find yourself feeling very tentative and, gosh, I really don't want to say that and think of Amos. And Amos just said, God has spoken And so I've got to tell you this. The lion has roared, and so I've got to tell you what the roar of the lion is. And again, you might feel like the lamb, but sometimes the lamb roars. There's a book called Roaring Lambs, isn't it? Bob Brenner? Anyway, it's about Christians living in this culture. Sometimes Christians are called on to speak God's word, not just to hear it. Amos is a really slick writer. On one hand, he's this totally direct blue-collar guy, right? But on the other, he's very slick. And and what I mean by that is uh, he uses literary structures as surely as the deep theological tones of John's gospel do, or John's epistles. If you read those by John, you realize uh, if you start looking for literary structure, it's all over. Well, it's all over Amos too. And, And he does some shrewd things so that when he gets to the main point, he has kind of set up his audience to be taken by surprise, to cut the legs out from underneath them so that when they hear the truth, they're shocked. They're shocked. He starts with, in Amos 1 verse 3, he's going to go through seven different areas and he's going to use, one, a literary device. uh, He'll say for three sins of and even for four, God's going to do something. He uses counting method throughout. 
And then he'll say he'll bring out one thing for three or four. There's multiple things, but God's going to nail them on at least one, and he'll give one. He's going to do this seven times. Let me just read the one to Damascus, which is the first. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath or my judgment, because she threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth. This may sound obtuse, but probably what this means, Gilead, of course, northeast Israel, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we assume that Damascus came in and probably not literally used iron sledges in threshing, but probably figuratively were destroying the Israelites in Galilee with no mercy, just as surely as an iron sledge would come in on the the reaped uh, crops and it would grind them up, that those up in Damascus had come down and slaughtered those in Gilead. He says, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. These were rulers in Damascus. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Aden, locations in Syria, by the way, the people of Aram. Seven times God goes through this. And it's interesting also, if you were looking at a map, we go uh, and think you're in Israel, right? So here's the Mediterranean, here's Israel, here's Judah. If you look at this at the map, he does Damascus up here. Then he goes Gaza down here on the coast. Then he goes up the coast to Tyre. Then he comes down southeast to Edom, goes north to Ammon, goes north to Moab, and then comes across and south to Judah. And every time he does the same thing. For three sins and for four, I'm going to bring judgment. Now, you know, uh, you remember back in the story of uh, David and Bathsheba? Uh, David takes his neighbor's wife and then has his neighbor, his godly neighbor, Uriah, murdered through warfare, through the use of warfare. David's done wrong and God wants to confront him on it. And so... He sends Nathan the prophet to King David. And do you remember how Nathan goes about this? Not head on, but from the side. So he tells David the story of this rich landowner who has thousands of sheep. And yet when a guest comes to his house that he needs to entertain, he goes to his poor neighbor who has only one sheep. He steals his sheep and slaughters it to provide for his friend. And King David is rightly outraged and his anger's up and he says, You know, he's going to bring judgment on this guy. And then Nathan turns, you know, his bony prophet finger to David and says, you're the man. You're the rich one who stole your neighbor's wife and had your neighbor murdered. You're the man. And David gets it all of a sudden, right? Because his feet are just taken out from under him. Because he sees the unrighteousness of the story Nathan's presented by making it someone else, then he's free to say, yes, that's wrong. And and then Nathan says, and you're the one who's done this. Well, this is exactly the way God has set up Israel for Amos's message. And by the way, when you hear someone else, you know, getting hammered and you feel someone else is really getting the message, you know, that they need to hear, you've got to be careful because you've got to wonder, am I next? And Israel's next. Now, you remember if you figure where these messages are going, you know what's in the middle of those lines of communication? Israel is in the middle of all that. They're the only one that hasn't been been mentioned and can you imagine you're in Israel and Amos the prophet has come up from the south and he's castigating all those ungodly pagan Gentile nations around you and then he gets down to those low down dirty relatives of yours down south in Judah and you're saying yeah you know get them Lord yeah and then he turns around just like Nathan did with David and he says and by the way I've got something to say to you too so 
in, let's see, verse 6, and also to the slickness, you know, he went around every place but Israel and these judgments and the indictments, and he mentioned seven, too, already. See, he's done seven. So if you're an Israelite and you hear Amos, and he gets to the seventh one, well, you know God deals in numbers, and so you figure seven's the number of completion, Judah's the last one. So they're sitting there and they're smug. Man, God got them all, you know, and, and we're okay. And then they're the eighth. See, they wouldn't be thinking this. They'd be thinking it's over with seven, but no, it's not. There's eight, and you're the eighth. And by the way, the whole balance of the book of Amos, it's not on any of, it's not on Judah, it's not on Damascus, it's all on Israel, which is where God was going all along. What's Israel's problem? Amos 2, verse 6, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I won't turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor like the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on ornament or excuse me on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. God accuses Israel here and actually he develops this further through the rest of the book. Two great sins Israel. The first is what we could broadly call social injustice. They were treating others wrong, unfairly, and the other is idolatry in the form of kind of a syncretism. And let me mention this so I don't forget because we're going to actually focus on social injustice. Um, On the syncretism, if you remember, when Israel as a nation was founded, God actually told King Jeroboam, its first king, I'm going to set up you as king over this northern part of my people. And if you follow me, I'll establish your kingdom after you. That is, it'd be your descendants, just like David, who would have your descendants ruling Israel after you, if you'll obey me. And do you remember one of the first things Jeroboam did, because he didn't trust the Lord? He was afraid that if his people in Israel went down to the temple in Jerusalem, he'd lose them. So he set up his own temples. And just like Aaron and the golden calf in the Exodus, they set, they set up calves at Bethel and two other cities. <coughs> Excuse me. So that Israel, from its very inception, was founded on this syncretistic idolatry in which they still called on the God of Israel, but they were worshiping before these golden calves. And then, of course, that, left, that less, uh, led to the worship of other idol gods that were from the Middle Eastern areas. So on one hand, Israel still says, no, God, you're God, but we are worshiping at every shrine we've got. It's God plus every other thing. That's what he talks about, and he'll talk about this later too, though we won't spend much time there. But God says, you can't worship me and that golden calf, and you can't worship me and every other thing. That's why I brought up these things about lying down beside every altar. And the immorality we've mentioned again, it says a father and a son take the same girl. It's probably the prostitution that took place at these places of idol worship. So two things, social injustice and idolatry. Those are the the axes God is grinding with Israel. He fleshes this out a little bit in Amos 4. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Um, it's interesting, you know, if God wants to castigate women in the Old Testament, he calls them cows. This is not good. You know, if God's calling you a cow, this is not a good thing. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. 
Uh, Samaria, again, a place of idolatry. You women who do what? Oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. And then God tells them part of his judgment. Therefore, you've built stone mansions, but you're not going to live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you won't drink their wine. I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. In Israel's day, wealth was based both on land ownership and on capitalism, basically a similar uh, economy to what we have today. The rich, though, had manipulated these situations to seize the land that belonged to others, taking away their means of sustenance. And then also, the poor were often taking out loans which they couldn't repay on time, and the people that had loaned them the money had no mercy. They were selling them cheaply as slaves. They had absolutely no care. They got the land, they got the grain, they got the wine, they had everything they wanted, and they didn't care a lick about the people that had suffered who had nothing left, basically, to go forward on. If you remember, too, Israel, and Israel, according to the law, you couldn't sell Jews as slaves. Jews weren't supposed to be sold as slaves by fellow Jews, and if they couldn't repay, land was never supposed to be taken, or if it was sold for debt, it was supposed to be repaid It could be redeemed later, but none of this was taking place in Israel. The rich were just having it all their own way at the expense of the poor. In Israel, in this time in which uh, Amos is writing to them, uh, they're wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. They're as big. Their borders go as far north as they did in Solomon's day. They're as wealthy as they were in the days of Solomon. They're extremely wealthy. But the gap, there's the extremely wealthy, and now there's the extremely poor. And the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. And that's what God's castigating them for. And it's interesting, too, they thought that God, that the true value was in the things they could get, the mansions they could build, the vineyards they could plant, etc. But, you know, let's just say this is 750. Israel is gone in less than 30 years. They're gone entirely. There is no nation of Israel within the generation of this lifetime, the lifetime of this group that's being addressed here by Amos, they don't exist. The Assyrians have scattered them throughout the Middle East within the lifetime of the people who heard these words. They thought their wealth was in the material possessions and they didn't value what God valued. They didn't value their neighbors. They didn't value their relatives. In Amos 5... God gives his perspective. This is part of his roar. Amos 5, starting at verse 21. Remember that he's talking to a people who still considers itself religious. They're still going to synagogue, so to speak, on the Sabbath, as well as these other things. But God says, I hate and despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I won't listen to the music of your harps. These are all the things they would do in religious services. God says, I don't want any of it. What does he want instead? Verse 24, great memory verse. This is a verse used, by the way, in literature and stories through the years. What is God after? Let justice roll on like a river 
and righteousness like a never-failing stream. When the lion God roars through Amos, it sounds like this rolling, roaring river. You know, if you've heard a river in flood stage, it's this roar. God's voice is often compared to a roaring water in the Old Testament. When God roars, it sounds like this rushing river, and He says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Your Various translations will word this just slightly different, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God is after. You can imagine if the Israelites are coming to their, to their synagogues and their places of worship, and they're bringing all these offerings, and then they go home and they kick the landowner who's borrowed money off so that they have nothing to provide their family with. God says, I'm not after that. What I'm after is justice and righteousness. Don't come to my courts. Don't bring me the offerings. I'm not interested. You're not right with me, and you're not right with your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same thing here. It's the same message we've got in Amos. You know that today we live in the wealthiest nation on earth. And we've got to be careful. We'll, we'll close up on some issues related to social justice. But you've got to ask yourself, uh, to what degree do we sit at home like the wives, the cows of Bashan, and say, pass me that latte? Is it the expense of someone else? And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it has to be or that it necessarily is. But as those who live in a land just like these guys in Israel, great material wealth, but also great need, great material wealth. Are we ignorant? Are we dull to the issues of folks that live around us or don't live around us, near or far, that we need to be helping? God calls us to love Him and to love others. And Amos hammers on this theme about doing right by your neighbors. It takes both. It takes both. But he hammers on this theme of doing right by others. You know, if you look at what God values, you don't have to look any further than the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. If you, if you just stop and say, what in God's economy is the most valuable thing? Then you could ask the question something like this. What does God value most? And, and we could say, it, uh, what has he paid the most for? You know, if you look, if, if the cost of something determines its worth, what has God paid for? What has he purchased? And of course, in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, he's purchased people. So if you ask the question, what does God value most? And again, this is outside our personal relationship with him. We have to honor him first before we can honor others. God values people more than anything else because Christ came to die for people like you and me. So you cannot do right by God if you're dissing people that he died for. You can't do it. It's impossible. God values people. He proved it in the purchase, if you will, the redemption of humanity. So we can't love God if we don't love what God loves and what he loves most, what he values most, is people. So if we love God, to love our fellow means that we're we're honoring, we're valuing what God honors and what God values. God values people. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, like Israel and like us, they had great material wealth. 
and they thought that the material wealth was the true wealth, and God says, no, you don't get it. You guys, you don't have real wealth. You're poor and you're wretched and you're blind and you're naked. They thought the material wealth was it, and God says it's not. You know that anything that we can own or possess on this earth, it's all going to burn up. One day it will be no more. There won't be anything left of it because the earth, everything it contains will burn up. It's all gone. The only thing that survives earth is people. So when you and I love God to value what he values, we invest in people. People, as far as God is concerned, people are the true wealth, not material possessions. Material wealth is great. We enjoy it. It makes life easier in some ways, but it's easy to fool ourselves to think that the material wealth is the true wealth. It's not. In God's economy, people are the true wealth. Social justice has been the banner of what I would call Christian liberals and Christian nominalists for decades. Um, efforts to, to do right, to ha- be helpful to people in the United States and around the world who have less. And this is a noble thing, but it's not just the purview. It's not just the concern of social or uh, nominal Christians. It should be the concern of every Christian, any Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, anyone who calls himself by Christ's name, who says he loves God, should have the same concern. Amos's concern, the roaring lion's concern for those around him. It can be tricky if you heard someone uh, teach and say you need to take care of others and you just went out and you just tried to be generous and give away to others, you could be really misguided and really do as much harm as good. You know, as a church, we've tried to be generous and we've given away considerable sums of money uh, for our budget uh, at times which, in retrospect, didn't look like great uh, giving or great investments. But, you know, we were doing it to honor God by trying to show care for someone else. And so the motive's right. And if you lose a little money here or there, it's just money. It's just money. But to, uh, I think to fulfill this, this thought in Amos, to, do, to show justice and to show true help, true mercy, true compassion to our neighbors, you've got to do it thoughtfully. You've got to do it thoughtfully. We live in a nation in which the poorest among us uh, have color televisions and microwaves and food, you know, falling out the shelves. And so if you think doing right by others, by those with less, just means going out and giving someone money, it, it may not be. You know, there's lots of people who would be glad to take your money if it would salve your conscience so that they can continue to live the life, the dissolute life that they wanted to anyway. This is not what we're talking about. It's easy to do that. We could salve our own conscience and have nothing to do with actually showing justice and mercy and help and compassion to others. Close to home, this has two levels. Close to home, if you're an employer, you could ask yourself questions like, do I pay my employees a fair wage? And do I pay them when I'm supposed to? Do I pay them timely? Am I a good employer? Am I treating those under my authority well? Or if you have authority of any kind towards others, are you doing right by those under your authority? Um, Do you help neighbors? Do you help the people who need help that you know about close to you? So sometimes in, the, in a church like ours, that's just helping somebody pack up and move. Sometimes that is uh, giving money to someone else who doesn't have money. Sometimes that is confronting someone with the, the lion's roar, so to speak, when they need to hear something, the truth. That's the same thing. It's compassion for others. It's the same thing. Locally, our church, this is not patting our own backs, but we, do, we have tried to put our money where our mouth is. 
we support every month the Topeka Rescue Mission in North Topeka because the Topeka Rescue Mission does a great job of, uh, I've told to others, if you want to be soft-hearted, you first got to be hard-headed. Be hard-headed, then be soft-hearted. The mission's hard-headed and they're soft-hearted. They're both. They do it well. They really are a great help to all kinds of people and families with food and shelter and getting people back on their feet. But they don't do it with no thought. They're careful about it. It's a great place. It's a great place that our church invests because we thought that was a way we could do the kinds of thing Amos is talking about. We're doing right. We're helping others as we can close to home. Also, though, uh, the church has supported for several years now Voice of the Martyr, which not close to home but around the world, Voice of the Martyrs is one of those Christian agencies which seeks to help suffering Christians around the world, suffering and persecuted Christians around the world. You know, the truth is you and I don't know, and it's pretty difficult for individuals to, as an individual, go out and try and help someone in Darfur or other parts of Africa or other parts of Asia. Pretty hard for you or I to do that. But we do it every month when we support agencies like Voice of the Martyrs. We have tried to put our money where our mouth is. I just recently watched, and just winding down, the the movie Hotel Rwanda. How many here have seen it? Wow, okay. Uh, You guys may remember in 1994, the different groups in the nation of Rwanda uh, clashed. And the Hutus and the Tutsis Uh, were groups with some divisions historically, really insignificant divisions historically, but divisions nonetheless. And in 1994, uh, the Hutus decided to wipe out the Tutsis. They gained, uh, they had the military power to do so. They gained the political power. And for several months, just like more recently in Darfur, the Hutus uh, massacred their Tutsi neighbors. Uh, Horrendous. Uh, Literally, they imported machetes for no other purpose than to hack their neighbors to death. This is the way. uh, They figure a million minimum Tutsis were killed in this time period. In this movie, a guy who's a Hutu, that is, he's he's part of the group that has the power in the nation, uh, is the manager of a hotel, a nice foreign-owned hotel. And when he hears rumors of trouble starting, he doesn't think they're true. He just doesn't think people could really do these things. So he turns a blind eye. And his life is successful. His life personally is successful. He's bribed all the right people all through his life. He's got all the right connections. His hotel, even if things are dire straits or uh, incoming supplies are scarce, he can still get the best cigars, the best whiskey, the best food, etc. because of his connections, because of his shrewdness as a business operator. But as these events start unfolding, he wanted to just play it safe and get his lattes and his single scotch malt whiskeys to his clients and be comfortable. But as time kept going on, he found out that not only was it true, but his neighbors were gone. And then he found out that his sister-in-law and brother-in-law were gone and their children were hiding in refuge in someone's house and You see, he realized, too, that his wife, who was a Tutsi, could also be taken. And he went from this position of saying, I'm going to 
put my, I'm going to keep my blinders on. I'm going to take care of me and mine. And I'm going to run this hotel and I'm going to ignore everything else going on around me. He got to the point where he thought, I can't ignore it anymore. And so this hotel in Rwanda became a refuge center. He ended up, through his efforts, saving over 1,200 people that would have been massacred. For a while he thought, I don't have to see it. I don't have to hear it. I can escape it. I don't have to be responsible. Who is my neighbor? My guests are my neighbors and I'll forget everybody else. And, And he couldn't do it. And, you know, you and I shouldn't be able to either. And, again, this looks different for us than it does for Amos or than it did for him. But ask yourself these questions close to home. Lord, are there people you've put in my life that need help that I can provide? And it might be financial and it might not. It might be advice. It might be time. It could be a number of things. People with less than you, has God put them in your life because he wants you to serve them? It could be any one of a number of ways. And then also long distance. The truth is we live in a, in a time in which we know what's going on around the world almost minute by minute. You know, it's kind of funny. You get the daily newspaper and I think that's old news because I saw that article last night online. And so we're aware of much more of what's going on around the world. And because we're aware of it, we can't, be, uh, we can't cut ourselves off from all of that. And so we also have to look distance. Lord, how can I help Christians in Darfur? How can I help Christians in Asia or other persecuted areas? And sometimes it won't be any more than writing a check to Voice of the Martyrs or the Topeka Rescue Mission. Sometimes for some of us it may mean going to another part of the world to serve an underserved area, medically or economically or whatever. It could be numerous ways. But this message of Amos, when the lion roars, God's word was, you're not doing right by others. You're living in luxury at the expense of others. You're turning a blind eye to the needs of your neighbors. And the truth is, in the end, we cannot love God truly if we're not loving our neighbor. It's said this way in the New Testament, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your neighbor who you do see. We do these things. We love God and we love our neighbor. In a sense, they're interchangeable. We're loving God when we love our neighbor. We can't get away from that. Let's pray. Lord Amos said the lion roared and Lord, I believe you're still roaring today. I I pray that the truth of your word, Lord, would rouse us like the roar of a lion waking a sleeping man, if need be, Lord, but that we adhere what your truth is to your church today. Lord, we do want to continue to be involved in places like the mission and Voice of the Martyrs, but if there's other things, other ways, other people that you mean for us to be serving, Lord, show us that as well. Lord, help us to value what you value. Help us not to place too big a premium on material wealth and physical comfort, much as we enjoy those. But Lord, help us to pay to make a premium of people to both share the gospel with them, the ultimate burden of the Lord with others who don't yet know you. And then, Lord, to speak words of truth and to give and to serve in all the ways, Lord, that you provide for us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.